concert, I've been listening to Christmas music, and, um, and this morning I got up as I, I had a time of a private worship. I started listening to um, some Christian music, and it dawned on me that the majority of the people that are singing these uh, hymns that I, I love, the majority of them um, are unbelievers. And I thought to myself that they're singing because they're talented, but God's people sing because we believe, and some of us are talented. Um, but, but all I had to say, it's wonderful to come to church and hear people sing songs because they believe it, regardless of their talent level. And so I hope you see the wonder and the beauty of being here in church. Yes, it's not a concert and, and we don't have all five parts singing, but we are among people who believe. And when we sing the songs that we've sung today and have been singing, they come from a place of faith. And I hope your faith is encouraged um, certainly by that. Well, we've been going through a series of sermons um, on Christ, and I was driving um, in the car yesterday, and I told my wife, man, I wish um, I had this thought, and I jotted it down. I said, I wish I had this thought at the very beginning, because I would have named this sermon series, The Savior Who Comes to Earth and Brings Gifts, because that's what we've been looking at. He's the Savior who came to earth and brought the gift of hope to the world. And the Savior who came to earth and brought the gift of wisdom to the world. And today we'll look at the Savior who comes and brings the gift of justice to the world. So let's read God's holy and inspired word. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equi equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall, lie, uh, shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. A cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. All flesh is as grass and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord shall endure forever. And this is the word that will be preached unto you. Amen and amen. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you that indeed this is your word. And Father, we are your people. Bless us today. Give us your wisdom 
and your power and cleanse our hearts and minds from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. At the height of the HIV-AIDS pandemic, which took place around the 1980s, a friar by the name of Gary Castor was uh, deep into his doctorate in philosophy. And he was uh, engaged in teaching, in fact, has a, had a very prominent teaching career. One day, uh, Mother Teresa came to him and she said, you will come here tonight. And the place that she was talking about was a makeshift hospital that they had created in Washington, D.C. to care for the people who had been infected by AIDS at that time. Of course, uh, like everyone during that time, Friar Castor was afraid. He had heard about AIDS and HIV. Not much was known about it at the time. Unlike COVID, HIV AIDS did not have a 2% kill rate. It was 100%. And the death was slow and painful and agonizing. But reluctantly, Friar Castor showed up. And when he showed up, he was asked to care for a young man who had been left in a hospital, local hospital, neglected. One of the things that Friar Castor did was he undressed this young man, slowly bathed him, put on a diaper, and changed his clothes. As Friar Castor prayed with him, he left the room. And as he was leaving the room, the young man called him back and said, would you please just sit with me? So Firecaster went back, held his hand, and sat with him. And Firecaster did that for a few days until the young man died. Now, why did I tell you this story? Because I believe that Firecaster's story is a story of what justice looks like, biblical justice the kind of biblical justice that we are called to. In fact, Friar Castor said that that experience so shaped him and made his faith real and that he understood from that simple act what biblical justice looked like. And I want to point us to three things that this story taught me about biblical justice that I, that I saw in this text. And the first was this. Notice that because of his education and status in life, he could have said no. He, he could have said, this is too beneath me. Having to bathe someone and change their diaper and sit with them? No, I, I'm an educated friar. I'm getting a PhD in philosophy. I'm an educator. I'm not someone who takes care of people sitting in a lowly a uh, hospital room, especially dying from AIDS, let somebody else do that. But he didn't. He took it upon himself. The second thing I want to show you is that he did not look at this young man and say that this young man's action caused his suffering and therefore he deserved it. Which, by the way, many evangelicals in that time actually said. 
Many evangelicals during the AIDS pandemic said, look, these people got AIDS because they were homosexuals. And therefore, it is not our responsibility to care for them. This is the judgment of God upon these people. In fact, I grew up in a place in which there was, they were treated with great disdain. And it wasn't until much later when people started getting AIDS through blood transfusion and the like that care was actually given to homosexuals who had AIDS. But Friar Castro didn't say that. You see, for all of us, we think that justice is only for those that are deserving. That there's such a thing as a deserving poor. That there's such a thing as somebody deserving our justice and therefore we give it. May I remind you that no one deserves justice? Not even you. We'll get back to that. But also... There's a false understanding of biblical justice that it only has to do with punishment. Nonsense. Justice is more than punishment. Biblical justice is caring for the people around us that need it. Biblical justice is simply saying, look, we recognize that there are broken people in the world that there are hurting people in the world, that there's broken systems in the world, hurting people in the world, and it is our responsibility as Christians to do something about it, regardless if the people deserve it or not. That's biblical justice. But I want you to see the third thing. He didn't say no because he didn't respond in fear. And by the way, he could have responded in fear. Like I said, not very many people knew how AIDS were transmitted early on. There was a lot of confusion. And even though he had on gloves and masks and everything else, there was still a very high risk for him to be infected by this young man who was highly infectious. And yet still, he took care of him. Because that's what biblical justice demands. Now, as we look at the passage before us, we see a Savior who does much more. Who not only cares for our physical needs, but also cares for our spiritual needs and does the work of justice. And I want to just take a few moments to show you the kind of person that does justice well in the Bible. The kind of men and women like Friar Castor who runs to those who are hurting and wounded and in pain. And they do it without fear, without care for their status, and not asking the question whether or not they deserve it. Because may I add that all three of those things are true whenever Christians approach a situation of justice. We let pride and fear get in the way. We ask a ton of questions to rationalize why we shouldn't do something or why we shouldn't help someone. And we blame those who are in need of, our, of justice. We blame those who are in need of our help, I think, as a mechanism for not helping them. There's no excuse. And the passage that's before us today shows us that. 
So I want to look at two things, two aspects of the Messiah's justice. First of all, the character of the one doing justice. I want us to look at the priority of justice. First of all, the character of the one doing justice. Notice in the text, let's begin at verse number three. I want to point out that the character of the person that's doing justice is a person wise. They're full of wisdom. Notice the trend in this passage, the logic of this passage is that the Messiah is going to come and he's going to come in hope. He's going to be the branch or the shoot that comes out of the stump. And one of the things that God is going to give him and endow him with is wisdom. And this wisdom is given so that he might act in a just manner. That's why wisdom is given, so he can act in a just manner. Now, let me say this. You cannot exercise wisdom without truth. In fact, wisdom, truth is to wisdom what oxygen is to fire. We have to know the truth. This is why when Jesus came on earth and he talked about issues of justice, he always prefaced it, truly, truly, I say unto you. In other words, this is the truth. Believe me, I have the authority to speak the truth, and therefore you live and move and work in light of the truth. In fact, Jesus, when he spoke to his disciples, he said, I am the way, the what? truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Incidentally, this is why the devil traffics in lies. And he tries to obscure the truth. He tries to make the truth difficult for God's people. That's why in verse number three, the Bible says that he shall not judge or he shall not conduct justice by what he sees or decides dispute by what he hears. Why? Because our eyes and our ears are insufficient arbiters for the truth. Because we will always be led astray by what we see and what we hear. I have a friend, he, uh, a pastor friend, he tells a story of one night he's putting down his little girl. And his little girl said, Daddy, I, I want to play. And he looks at her and he says, no, no, no playtime. And so he tries to put her down again. And she kept saying this over and over again. And finally he got upset and he disciplined her. He spanked her and he put her down in her bed, and he said, that's enough now, not playtime. And he begins to walk away. And she just starts crying and said, but daddy, all I want to do is just play. And that's when he realized that she wasn't saying, I want to play. She was trying to say, I want to pray. See, every night before they went to bed, they would pray together. But he forgot. And she was trying to remind him that they needed to pray together before she was put to bed. He could not tell that story. Even today, 20 plus years later, he cannot tell that story without tears welling up in his eyes. Because that's an example of him judging based on his eyes and his ears. And not with the truth of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And beloved, now more than ever, the people of God need to learn not to judge things by our eyes and our ears, 
but by the wise counsel of this word and by the wise counsel of the Holy Spirit. How many times in your life have you judged prematurely and relied on your eyes and your ears and you were flat out wrong? We do it every day with our children. We do it every day with our spouse. We do it every day with each other by imputing bad motives, by not thinking about things when we read them or see them. We're so quick to judge based on what we see and hear, and we don't take the time to pause and pray and say, Lord, I know I'm thinking about this this way, but is this the truth? Am I really seeing what I think I'm seeing? Or do we often respond quickly? Get upset quickly. I don't know about you, but I often do. To my shame, I judge based on my eyes and ears more than I do on the Holy Spirit. And it's cost me dearly. So I want to encourage us, the next time you shoot off a text or email someone, or attempted to snap back at your spouse, why don't you take a moment and pray? Say, Lord, am I seeing this right? Am I imputing bad motives? Am, am I judging by what I see and hear or by your spirit? Next, the character of the person doing justice is that of reverence. Notice at the beginning of verse number three, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. That means, that word delight has the idea of just a, an, a scent, a pleasant aroma. And that pleasant aroma has to do with reverence. That the way in which we pursue justice in this world is with a spirit of reverence before God and before one another. You know, it's interesting to me. When I look online and I see people who claim to be doing justice, they're the most frustrated angry, full of hate and vitriol and sad people you can ever meet. But the Christian is supposed to be different. We, the people of God, should pursue justice with a spirit of reverence for one another, especially in the church. Especially in the church. But also, if we are the people of God and we want to do justice outside here, if we want to change the world, we have to do it with a spirit of reverence, not with anger and frustration, but reverence. Do you handle situations with reverence? Is the aroma of Christ on you when you're disciplining your children or when you're talking to your spouse or when you're talking to other people? Is the aroma, the sweet aroma of reverence characterize your actions? Or is it filled with frustration and anger and suspicion? But notice also righteousness. Righteousness is important. That if we are to do justice, we need to practice righteousness. Notice in verse 4 and 5, it says this, that he's not going to judge with his eyes or his ears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Now, in the Bible, the word righteousness and justice come from the same 
verbal roots, meaning that they're interconnected. And what God is saying here is that as you have been made righteous by God, your calling is to act justly in the world. As you have been reconciled to God uh, vertically, then that should play out horizontally. By the way, that's the point of Micah 6.8, often called the Micah Mandate. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require? That you do justice and love kindness and walk humbly before your God. What is Micah calling the people of Israel to? He's telling them, as you, the people of God, have been made right by God, before God, you now have a responsibility to make things right in the world. That's your responsibility. Remember David, when he became king, the first thing he did after he became king, he said, who shall we show kindness to? And then he calls for Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son. And he stayed at his table for the rest of his life and feasted off off of David's table. David was doing justice. He was showing kindness and he was walking humbly before our God. That's what we, the people of God, should strive for. Simply, humbly, doing the work of the Lord because God has done his work in your life. Now notice quickly the priority of doing justice. Verse number four. That his righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity the meek of the earth. Now, some of you are wondering, why does God prioritize the poor, the widows, the fatherless, and the sojourner when it comes to doing justice? Why, why does priority go to the poor? Isn't he the God who shows no respecter of person? Isn't he the God that shows no favoritism? Why is he prioritizing the poor in this passage? There's an Old Testament scholar by the name of Leopold that I think says it better than I can. And he says this. He says, if they, meaning the poor, get their rights, then everyone else surely will. For that is the acid test of impartial administration of duties, not to overlook the unimportant Notice the two things that he says. First of all, if they, the poor, get their rights, then everybody will. Listen, the the rich will get their rights. They will advocate for themselves. But the poor and the uneducated cannot. And so God prioritizes them because of their lack of ability to execute justice for themselves. But notice he said it is the acid test for God's people in impartial administration of their duties. And by acid test, he simply means this, the conclusive test of whether or not we value the commands of the Lord. He's saying that one of the conclusive tests that we are truly following Christ is to do justice and to prioritize the poor. James says this too. He says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, that we visit the orphans and the widows in their affliction. We prioritize those that are poor and needy. 
Jesus was even more stark in, J- in Matthew chapter 25, verse 31 and on. When he talks about the final judgment, he says he will separate the sheep from the goat. The sheep are those that fed the poor and cared for those that were needy. And Jesus came to them and he said, thank you for feeding me when I was hungry. Thank you for visiting me when I was in um, prison. Thank you for caring for my needs. And they're like, what, Jesus, when did we do that? He said, because you did it to the least of them. Because you pursued after them. Because you prioritized the poor and needy among you. You were doing it to me. And then he went to the goats. And he said, you did not prioritize the poor. You did not feed me or clothe me. You did not visit me when I was in prison. And therefore, you are cast into outer darkness. And the thing that gets me about that passage, they said, well, Jesus, when did we do this? When were we supposed to do this? And Jesus is looking at them exactly because you didn't prioritize it. You were too wrapped up in your own kingdom. You were too focused on your needs and not the needs of others. And because you were so wrapped up in your kingdom and in your needs, of course you weren't even caring about my needs and my kingdom needs. And so because of that, they were cast into out of darkness. Now, brothers and sisters, many people in the world turn away from Christ because of the injustice in this world. I know so many people, so many friends that have turned away from Christ because they saw starving children and those that are sexually abused, those that are suffering and say that Christ doesn't care about them because no good God would allow people to suffer. I know a ton of people like that. But you see, they miss the point. Because God prioritizes the poor. He prioritizes them. That's how we know that he exists and he's real. And it's not just he prioritizes the physical needs of the poor. I know that God is true and real because the Bible tells me he prioritized our spiritual needs. That when we were poor and needy and unable to save ourselves, Christ came. Listen to these passages about how God prioritizes the poor in spirit. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit. Or 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Or 2 Corinthians uh, 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Or Philippians 2, 6 through 8, Christ Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. And being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even the death of the cross. May I remind you that when you were needy and that you didn't deserve help, when you were needy, Christ 
prioritized you. And now the calling of the gospel is for you not to be selfish, not to build your own kingdom, but do likewise and prioritize the poor. That's our calling. I'll close with a line from the classic sermon, but when life tumbles in, what then? Arthur John Gossip talks about the death of John Brown at the hands of the brute Clever House. And Clever House goes to the, uh, the, the house of John Brown, and he calls him out, and his wife comes with him. And Clever House takes a pistol and shoots John Brown in the head in front of his widow. And Clever House looks at John Brown's widow and said, my dear, what do you think of your husband now? And she said, I always thought greatly of him, but I think more of him now. And beloved, every time I think about how our Lord prioritized the poor in his life and his death, I always think greatly of my Lord, but I can tell you I think more of him now. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and for your grace and your mercy. How you do justice and prioritize the poor and how our calling is to do the same. And as we reflect on your death and the sacrifice made on Calvary, we rejoice. Help us to think more of you every time we reflect on your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Please stand for our final song.